This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Again, this is Jason Watt. In today's episode, we're going to have a real hardcore insurance discussion. I think most of you will appreciate Michael's approach to insurance. He really does take a financial planning approach to this, steps back, does some good analysis, gets into a good KYC, doesn't rush into any solutions, even if that's what the client is sort of looking for. I really enjoyed this interview. Uh, my biggest concern here, honestly, and I shared this with Michael afterwards, and I know, Michael, we've done some classes together here and there, but my biggest concern here is that Michael and I see things too much eye to eye, and I maybe don't ask him uh, tough enough questions or whatever the case is. This episode will be good for all credits in all jurisdictions. Alberta should be good for life and ANS. Manitoba, it will be good it will be good for a financial planning credit from FP Canada. Still no IROC credits. This episode wouldn't be good for IROC credits anyways. We are coming into IROC cycle eight. And maybe when we push into cycle eight, I'll see if we can put some investment stuff together. I actually have a guest lined up I'm interviewing next week where that program should be good for uh, IROC CE credits. So uh, maybe we can use that as a little bit of an experiment. Speaking of experimenting, I'm going to go back to an earlier version of the format here, I'm going to have some preamble, and then really we're just going to hear the interview, and then we'll have some post-show comments instead of having my uh, interludes as Michael is talking, as you've heard in the last few episodes. color for today's episode is purple. The color is purple. Before we get to Michael's interview, I just have a couple of acronyms that I'll cover off here. The first is one that we've heard before on this podcast, and that is IFA, or Immediate Financing Arrangement. And this is a front leveraged insurance contract. This is where you take a permanent insurance policy, usually a universal life policy, and you dump as much cash into the policy as the exempt test rules will allow. And then the insurer immediately allows you to borrow back against that cash value. This can be an effective way to finance permanent insurance. And for companies that have really good cash flow, this can actually be potentially cheaper over the long term than buying term insurance. So you'll see sometimes this comparison done where you look at a T10 policy and your total cash outlay over 10 years on a T10 as compared to your total cash outlay over 10 years 
on an IFA. And the deal with the IFA is because the insurer will lend you basically up to 100% or very close to it of the cash value, your only real cash outlay is in the first year and then maybe a little bit in the second, third year. But that cash outlay gets less and less because you're able to borrow so much of the account value and the account value stays invested during that time. Really, then you're borrowing your original dollars plus the uh, investment performance on that policy. It sounds really good. The IFA, however, has to be supported by good cash flow. And I would suggest works best where you have a corporation that's likely never to change in any substantive way except getting positive growth. And as you'll hear Michael and I talk about in the interview, I don't think either of us believes that that's always going to happen with every corporation. So I like the IFA in some scenarios. I find it's quite complicated. It does rely on, I would suggest, not any sort of aggressive tax permutations, but it does need you to understand the tax consequences. And there are some aggressive tax interpretations with some of the more aggressive versions of that IFA type of arrangement. The other acronym that comes up here is CGL. This is Commercial General Liability Insurance. Michael talks about this as a very sort of professional sector, and he's right. This is really sort of a daytime activity. And I would suggest that this kind of is to, let's say, home and auto insurance as financial planning is to, let's say, uh, income replacement life insurance, where you know you might cut your teeth on home and auto insurance and then say, you know, I really like that business owner market. I'm going to go and obtain my licensing to do uh, CGL. And a lot of CGL brokers will have uh, either their CIP or their CABE, the Professional Property and Casualty Insurance Certifications. And the rules for licensing vary from province to province for CGL. Just like you might have somebody who does a lot of insurance work and then says, you know, I really like dealing with the business owner market. I'm going to get my CFP. So I really think there's a comparison there, a sort of similar kind of playing field. And the CGL broker, much like the financial planner, will often deal in that business owner market, deal with the lawyers and accountants. Uh, they tend to have quite a bit of a field underwriting role. Commercial general liability insurance is not really underwritten the same way as home and auto insurance are. It's underwritten uh, very much based on the broker sort of walking around, looking at the business, review the financial statements of the business, look at policies and procedures, that type of thing, and bringing that back to an underwriter at head office and getting an assessment. And some of that underwriting is done today by algorithm, but you'll find a lot of companies that still prefer uh, human underwriting. So that's uh, IFA and CGL. Uh, let's hear from Michael and what he has to say about insurance for his uh, business owner clients. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Jason. Fantastic. Thanks. And yourself? Yeah, really good. Thanks. Uh, great of you to join us. Uh, Michael is a financial planner based here in Edmonton, both insurance and funds licensed and also in a multi-generational family business himself. Is that uh, about right, Michael? That is correct. Third generation now. 
that third generation. That's supposed to be the uh, the tripwire, isn't it, Michael? The third generation. <laughs> uh, so I've heard. So I've heard. Hopefully, I'm dodging it so far. Working to avoid it. I know that's true. So that's good. So I know you do some investment work. Most of your work is with business owner clients. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. And we were talking uh, offline before we started recording here about some insurance scenarios. And I was really happy to hear you talk about these scenarios. Just, I think it's something I haven't done enough of on the podcast to talk about insurance. And I think there's some real value in this. So you had mentioned that you had recently put in place some insurance for a couple of business owner clients. And maybe we can just go back to the beginning with this relationship or with this discussion. I'm not sure how much you can share here, but where would you have met these clients? Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll keep things as confidential as we need to. Uh, So these clients were referred to us uh, by the uh, commercial PNC insurance broker that we work closely with. So this was another multi-generational business. It was a child who bought the business from the parent and brought in another partner who was a senior employee. So it's gone from single owner to the, the child and senior employee owning 50-50% of the business. Oh, interesting. Okay. And do you have any idea what the trigger for that PNC broker would have been? What would have caused them to say, yeah, this is a place where we should give Michael a call? I think, yes, where, where it really came from is the, the sale of the business to the, the child and the senior employee uh, was triggered by a health crisis. This oh. was uh, the, the owner of the business uh, had a severe heart attack, which led to some other health complications, uh, was very quickly realized that he was no longer capable of maintaining the level of leadership and ownership in the business that he wanted to. So his trigger to sell happened much more rapidly than he was prepared for. Uh, he was lucky enough to have the right people in place. Uh, at least there was there was already there already been discussion of what the next steps would be, but being forced to do it, uh, kind of at the end of a gun. And in this case, that owner did not have any kind of uh, insurance in place to help mitigate that. It made it for a very challenging transition in a period a year where they they lost a lot of business, where there was a lot of uncertainty with their employees and with their clients, and even the new people taking over this business. We're starting out really unsure of what they were getting into uh, and concerned about what could happen if that if same kind of event took place to either of them. Okay. I mean, that's really good for the, that PNC broker to pick up on all of those things. And I think it shows that it's more than just us where there's that sort of KYC responsibility. Um, as far as your dealings with that PNC broker, do you do some I don't know, training or is that you sit down with a coffee and sort of explain these scenarios to them, or is it really just you count on them sort of knowing enough to know when to to send a referral off? A bit of both in all honesty. I, I am lucky enough to have a close relationship with a couple of PNC broker operations here in and around Edmonton. So I do some larger presentations to the brokers on a, you know, at least every couple times over the course of a year. Uh, but I do also try to make sure I have, some face-to-face time. I take a lot of them out for lunches and coffees and send a lot of emails around of changes in the market and just a reminder of how my offerings match their own and how I cover off risks that their products don't. And yes. by communicating in their language, I think it makes it a lot easier for them to fold it into their own KYC. Do you think that they expect referrals in exchange or do you, do you think that's a dead end? Uh, in the conversations I've had, it's always a, that would be nice, but I think they recognize the, 
Well, the reality of our markets. Uh, we tend to be, we as in the, the life and the health insurance side, tend to be a later decision. Uh, people are very quick or assume that they'll insure their property. They'll insure homes, businesses, vehicles, liability. They'll take care of all those things before they start to consider the risk of their own health and the possibility of a disability or a death. Uh, so it's, it's rare that I'm stepping into a situation and any business owner is covering off their buy-sell insurance before taking care of their fire and theft and liability. Yeah, I think so, that's a, a yeah. fair point. I think sometimes we approach these with the anticipation that people need to see a, a tit for tat on referrals. And I, I think to your point, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the simple case. Now, I, I do, like you said, most of my client business or most of my clients are business owners, and that's the environment I operate in. So when it's a situation that I'm dealing with a client and they are not already being taken care of by a PNC broker partner of mine, then it just becomes part of my own KYC that as I'm reviewing their shareholders agreements and their corporate financials, I would like to take a look at their, uh, their CGL policy. And I want to know when they're when their other insurance policies are renewing. So it can simply be part of the process that I'm gonna have another one of the experts on my team take a look at that. There's, there's at least an understanding that I'm looking out for their opportunities as well. Uh, and even if, uh, even if they are already working with one of my partner brokers, then allowing me to be one more touch point to the relationship solidifies that relationship as well. I'm sure that those partner brokers, they want to hear that you're approaching their clients with a professional approach and so forth, right? So. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's, a, that's a, an ongoing challenge in our industry that I think the, the commercial brokers, the PNC brokers tend to feel that they're looked upon a little more professionally than the life insurance world does. Uh, at least just the barriers to entry have sort of put another layer, layer in place there. So it's, it's a bit of an uphill battle. It takes a long time to convince them that I'm going to operate at the same level of professionalism that, uh, that they will. Once I've earned that, though, the relationship solidifies quite nicely. In this case, then, it sounds like the clients were very well primed, due to unfortunate circumstances, obviously, for a discussion about life, disability insurance, and so forth. What was the introduction like there? Michael, is it uh, sort of here's a, a phone call, an email, a face-to-face -face meeting? Do you remember how that initiated? Uh, first contact was an email. It was an email from the broker with myself CC'd in. And it was a broker, a broker emailing their clients saying, touching on their own points and then saying, and as in our conversation, you had touched on the need to insure yourself and your partner in case something happens. So I'd like to introduce my partner to take over offering those services as well, or at least answer some questions. Yeah, that's really a useful introduction, right? It makes it very clear what the relationship is. There's no question about what your role is. And uh, even to introduce you as sort of a partner, that's very reassuring from somebody that that business owner trusts. So now you go to, a, I assume, a face-to-face -face meeting. And did you meet both of them, both the the people who bought the business at the same time, or did you have two separate meetings? How How does that look? No, in this case, I was able to meet both of them, which is nice. I, I'm not a fan of those meetings where I can't get all the decision makers in the room because then it simply becomes we're pushing the ball down the court and we need another meeting before anything can be decided on. Uh, so okay. this is the case that both partners were able to meet with me. Uh, we scheduled a time where I actually sat down for a lunch and we had a, a good long time to, to build a little bit of rapport, get to know a bit about their business, about their views and what they were concerned about. 
And then I could start to, then I could take that information back with me and come back with some solutions or some suggestions later on. After that first meeting, do you prefer to keep meeting them, with them as the pair or do you separate it out then and have two separate ongoing engagements or, or however you want to approach that? In this particular case, we tried to keep them. I tried to keep the meetings with both of them. I play to what their organization likes to run by. Uh, most of my, most of the time, if I'm dealing with business owners, there's one particular individual who's going to manage the insurance stuff or the financial stuff, and that'll be the decision maker that I'll deal with. In this case, uh, they were very much both feeling feeling like they've been thrown in the deep end, but both also wanting to understand everything they were dealing with. So they asked that I keep everybody in the loop and that when we sit down face-to-face, it was with all three of us. Do you see this as an engagement with the corporation or an engagement with the two business owners? Who do you actually see as the client here if you had to uh, make that distinction? To me, it's much more the people. It's the, it's the owners. As much as the, the, the entire business uh, is going to be my client or I'm going to have a relationship with all of that, uh, our business is a personal relationship one. And there's no product I have that's some miracle product that the broker down the street doesn't. Uh, insurance, to a certain degree, is a bit of a commodity. So really, it needs to be a trusting and a personal relationship that I have with the individual on the other side of the table before we can take care of the bigger picture, the business, the accounts, the groups, et cetera. That makes a lot of sense. How early in these conversations would you have introduced just the, the sort of concept of life and disability insurance? Does it come up at that first lunch or do you work into it knowing that they're ready for that conversation? I try to push back that conversation. You know, I find typically when the time I'm sitting across from them, their assumption is that I'm there to sell them life insurance. So if they're friendly, they're going to bring it up and say, hey, how much is this going to cost? I need this much. Or they're just going to start throwing numbers around or expecting me to. I try to push back against that and say that's, that's, that is one option, but we need to investigate all your options and find out what the best one is. If I'm really going to offer any kind of uh, value as a planner, I need to be fair and say that insurance might not be the best option. It might not be an option at all. You might be uninsurable. The cost might be too high. Uh, it might not make sense. You might have more than enough cash flow to deal with it or silent partners who are involved. I try to push back and investigate all the options. Now, I can do that confident knowing that if they're relatively healthy, if they're relatively young, most likely the most efficient option is going to end up being insurance. So I'd rather wait until that's the last thing that comes to the table. I want them to see all the ugly, scary options of well, if one of us dies, we could sell the business or run to the bank or desperately try to find a new partner and all those situations that make them feel very uncomfortable that they just live through. And then my option, of course, comes at the end of the table or the option I prefer comes at the end of the conversation. And it just seems like the right and logical choice at that point. Right. And they're, of course, already ready for it. You've really framed that up for them nicely. It makes a lot of sense. With these two then, ultimately, I assume that insurance was the logical solution here. It sounds like two people, 50-50 owners of a, a business, relatively young in age. Yeah, they were, they were both right near the same age. They were both in their 40s. Uh, they were both healthy. And so it ended up that, in, that insurance at the amounts they needed were, was actually relatively inexpensive compared to the panic they had to deal with very recently with an unexpected transition. Uh, there was just, there was no question in their mind. Did you talk about personal insurance as well in this discussion, or did you just focus on the business needs here? 
Normally that would be part of my sales process. They actually jumped out and asked for it right at the time. Down the road after we'd had a few meetings and nailed down the right plan, the right structure, the right price, the right amounts and all the rest. When they saw what the actual costs would be, both of them independently of each other said, you know what, I still need insurance for my, for my mortgage and to take care of my family and all the rest. Can I do that at the same time? And of course, as we know, the answer is yes. And the numbers made sense. And so it was very easy to get the underwriting for both the corporate insurance and the personal insurance taken care of. I just want to be perfectly clear here. I think I know the answer to this, but for the personal insurance, then you have it owned personally. They're paying premiums personally. They and their spouses as beneficiaries or some version of that. Exactly. Yes. Do you ever see a situation where you would have insurance that's really for personal needs owned in a corporation? I have had clients and typically their accountants suggest such things. And it's usually in the situation where they have a holding company, a holding company that's 100% owned by one individual or 50-50 with that individual and, their, and his spouse or her spouse. Uh, it's not my preference. Um, I, I consider a major part of our role is looking at all the risks of a situation. And it's not risks that can only be solved with a check arriving in the bank. Uh, I prefer, and I typically will advise them, you need to act like a lawyer who may be not operating in your best interests is looking at the documentation you've left behind and is going to try to find out and try to figure out what you meant for everything to happen, how, what you meant for everything to roll out wise. So uh, I, I'm not a fan of having money go into a holding company that the intention was be paying a mortgage or supporting children's lifestyles or things like that. It may work out to be the tax efficiencies in that strategy are worth the risk. We just have to make sure documentation supports it in a big way. And by that, I mean, I just need to see wills, powers of attorneys, trust, trust documents, whatever needs to be in place to make sure their wishes are actually followed. And there's no question that a lawyer or the CRA could throw at them that would challenge the, the access or the direction of that money going where the person intended it to go. And I always have the uh, further add on to that, that if you ever don't need that corporation anymore, for whatever reason, that it becomes very uh, prohibitive to get that insurance out of the corporation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's good. I, I appreciate that uh, perspective. I know that sometimes the tax savings look so attractive that you want to have all that insurance sitting in that old co or whatever, but I, I think there's some risk there and you, you, I think you would do a good job of uh, elaborating that. Now, just back to this client. So you initially put in place, um, let's focus on the corporate owned insurance then. So any thoughts given, did you do term insurance here? Is there a reason for permanent insurance in a scenario like this? What's the decision process here? Uh, this particular result, I do show them all the options. Uh, part of that is just protecting myself as the service advisor. I don't want someone else coming in and selling them on something that they haven't already heard from me, good or bad. Uh, it ended up that, and I agree, the right choice at this time was term insurance. Being relatively young and healthy with a business that was going through some disruption, uh, cash flow was a bit of a concern. And while they wanted the protection in place, uh, they couldn't be 100% certain, whereas any, any business can never be 100% certain, but they couldn't be very confident that a large premium permanent policy 
even with the strategies available to that kind of structure, they couldn't be sure that those premiums were gonna be able to be supported in the next few years. So knowing I could take that term insurance and three years down the road, five years down the road, if and when business has stabilized and reached a point that those other strategies become viable on a cash flow basis, there's always the conversion. When you put that insurance in place, I assume you have insurers that you prefer dealing with for whatever mm-hmm. reason. What would weigh into your decision as to what insurer to use for that term insurance policy? Well, one of the biggest ones is that point I just touched on of the conversion. I need to make sure that there's a product I can convert into that is the right product and has all the best options at the time. I often use the analogy that we all have a, a time bomb inside us somewhere where no one knows when it's going to go off. So I can't be sure that three years down the road, I'll have the option of writing new insurance. With term insurance, the price difference from carrier to carrier is fairly nominal. So I would rather, even if it means paying an extra dollar or two a month, put them with the carrier that has the better permanent product that I think is right for this company so that that becomes that option available to me at conversion time. And as far as those permanent products go, how do you make a distinction there? What would be some of the factors you would use to to assess the permanent products? Well, it'll depend on looking at the the longer term needs of the owners and what their strategy or what their plans are when it comes time for succession. Dealing with people in this particular case, we had a couple of business owners in their 40s. And so I started trying to draw that picture out of, you know, they each had young kids. How long do you think you'd want to continue working in this business? Do you have a an, a rough timeline when you'd think this would be the right age to sell. And if we're looking 20 or 30 years out, then I can start to paint those pictures of, do we want to be putting money aside so there's funds available, uninsured retirement program type structure? Is that a goal now to use those premium dollars efficiently that way? Or if it's a business where cash flow is not necessarily a challenge, but something that they need access to, that they want to be putting a lot of money back into the business for growth, and that the, uh, the retirement plan is really the value of the business they're going to grow, then I might be looking for a company or a permanent product that has uh, better options for uh, leveraging, an immediate financing arrangement type of structure. Do you, do, do you find yourself doing IFA with some regularity or is it once a year kind of thing for you? How often do you, do you have that conversation? Uh, The conversations are fairly frequent. Again, I I consider a big part of my job is to make sure my clients are educated on their options. As far as a client that actually goes through with it, it's pretty rare. I would say once or twice a year. With the accountant then, where do you bring the client's accountant into this conversation? Need to have any discussion with the accountant at this point or does that come up uh, only much later on? I like to bring the accountant in or at least have an initial contact with the accountant as early as possible. Uh, We've all run into accountants who are who don't look favorably upon the insurance industry or the people working in it, uh, who think that we're maybe trying to sell things that aren't the best for the clients. And so the sooner I can alleviate those concerns or at least get an idea of how the accountant is going to view what I'm going to suggest, uh, the better prepared I can be. So even though in this case we were going with a, a, the, the very inexpensive term products, uh, I still had a telephone conversation with the accountant early on. And that account in this particular case was fairly friendly, did recognize the value in what we were doing, and was comfortable going ahead with the, the recommendation for the term policy. Now, getting a, a few years down the road, when hopefully business has reached a point that some other options become come onto their table, definitely then at that point, I need the account sitting there with the partners 
and able to get fully involved in any conversations about permanent funding, about use of holding companies, about any kind of leveraging or any of those other more advanced strategies. Do you find yourself ever having the conversation with the accountant about how to actually account for premiums being paid? Yes, yes. Uh, that's un unfortunately an area that I do find a number of accountants don't understand fully. And uh, it's another, it's one of those games that I have to play and I, you, you never want to make another professional look bad in front of their clients. And again, the reality is uh, our role tends to be one of the later people added to the team. The accountant has worked with the client typically for years before we've had a chance to. So that accountant can very quickly cut us out of the process. So when I have in a situation where an accountant is recommending or advising something that I either know for sure to be incorrect or I simply disagree with, I'd bring that up offline. I would rather do that directly to the accountant over the phone or by email. And I'll typically try to find some third party material, ideally from an accountant's office or a legal office or someone other than myself that I can pass along and play a bit of that political softball, play a bit dumb and say, hey, I heard something about, about this and about the deductibility of insurance premiums. And I found this article, but I want to make sure I understood it fully. This is your world, not mine. What do you think? And I send them something that shows what they're actually allowed to deduct, what the requirements are. And perhaps without directly saying the accountant has made a mistake, at least giving them the opportunity to be the ones to bring it up to their clients to say, we need to make a little adjustment here. I like that approach. I, I do think that it's so important to maintain that relationship with the other advisors. And yeah, you don't want to get into a headbutting competition with the person who's been there 10 years longer than you, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in this scenario, going back to our original scenario, so you put, I assume, two life insurance policies in place, term insurance policies? Yes. And was there any other risk management that you put in place early in that uh, dealing with that set of clients? Absolutely. Uh, in my initial conversation with them, in our very first face-to-face -face meeting, I like the, the bigger picture approach. And I've, I've used a strategy or my presentation uh, unofficially titled, If Money Were No Object. And I'll just touch on all the different areas of risk that I can assist with and say, if money were no object, or in an ideal world, this is what everyone would have. We would all have these beautiful, fully funded, permanent life insurance policies. We would all have disability insurance as close to the all sources maximums we could possibly get. We would all have critical illness insurance to insure, et cetera, et cetera. Then it goes back to the client and helping them recognize risk of a death, risk of a disability, risk of a major diagnosis, risk of a long-term care, risk of a, of a health, other health event. Which of these are your top priority? What's keeping you up at night right now which of these do you want to put to bed today? And then the client is able to take that first step and say, you know what, the biggest thing that worries me is this. Typically, I find it's the life insurance. We might know statistically that's the least likely thing that's going to happen to the partner. But I think the, the black and white nature of it uh, is a little more clear. And I think it's easier for people to wrap their heads around. There's less sort of mental gymnastics they have to do to understand the value in a life insurance policy. So in this case, these partners said, the first thing we want to take care of is to make sure if one of us passes away, the surviving partner has the funds to ensure that their family gets the value of the business as it is today. But I had already planted that seed to say, wonderful, after we take care of this risk, we're going to talk about the rest of these. 
So when I delivered the life insurance policies, immediately I bring out that same chart or that same picture I had and said, great, we've ticked off one of these risks. What's the next one? And in this case, they both agreed that exactly what they had just watched the one's father go through. What happens if one of us gets a, a major diagnosis? What happens if one of us has a heart attack or a stroke or cancer? So that conversation becomes, well, here's some options to protect the company and offer some funds and support to keep things afloat while that individual recovers as, as best as possible. And so the critical illness conversation went on from there. And with that critical illness, then, do you look at personally owned, corporately owned? Do you do split dollar? Where do you go with that? I'm personally a fan of split dollar. Uh, I really like the structure. I have it on myself and I recommend it to my clients. If the situation is right, again, cash flow is king. Uh, as far as personal versus corporate owned, I have the conversation about where do the where do the funds need to go? Where is the real risk here? Is the concern the viability of the company if one of the partners leaves? Or is the concern that individual being able to keep food on the table and get access to the, the support and treatment they need? In this case, both partners agreed that the higher concern was to get the money into the company because the company can always pay out and continue to support that partner during treatment. But if the, co but the company needs those resources first to make sure that they can keep everything afloat. So in this case, it made sense for the company to own and the company to be the beneficiaries of these policies. Once that decision's made, then the conversation around the shared ownership or the split dollar structure uh, becomes unnatural. Once again, we can look at shorter term type structures. I'm actually not a fan of term critical illness insurance. I much prefer to see that in a permanent structure. And when I can explain the, the ability of to use that shared ownership split dollar benefit and structure it so 15, 20 years down the road, right around the time we discussed earlier, they might be looking at their own succession. The ability of canceling that policy and taking the personal refund should CRA not step on our toes before then, uh, became very attractive. And so we nailed down, okay, what, what kind of amount of money would the fund or what kind of funding would the company need if I just showed up tomorrow and threw one of you in the back of the van and took you away for 12 months? What would the company need to keep things afloat? What would the family need to keep food on the table and keep everything going? We figured out what that right number was, and they were very happy to move forward with that protection. And you mentioned it in your comments there. You said if CRA didn't step on our toes, what do you cover in terms of tax risk with that strategy? Because, of course, as we know, there's not a definitive word about the tax treatment of these things. Yep. I always see the accountants pucker up when I start to present this one. Uh, and I have to be completely upfront with that. I say right now, this is how this works. But I show them in black and white illustrations side by side. If things stay the way they are right now, if CRA doesn't challenge this premium refund shared ownership structure, then this would be the refund available to you. If CRA makes a formal decision or makes a formal ruling or shuts this opportunity down, this is what it would look like. And at the end of the day, the risk has to come first. There has to be a need for the critical illness. We're not pitching this as some kind of tax loophole savings vehicle. The risk has to come first. They recognize the need and the risk for the critical illness insurance and the permanent insurance with a return of premium 15 years out in this case. It made sense on its own. The potential to get that premium refund personally and avoid a little bit of tax on it is just gravy. From that perspective, they seem comfortable.
I think you've addressed the big point there, which is that there first and foremost has to be an insurance need. And I think we get ourselves into trouble sometimes when we head down this path with no insurance need. But the scenario you are dealing in here where the fellow that has left the business was left exactly for this reason, you couldn't find a better way to position this, right? A better a better example of this risk. Now, what about uh, disability insurance, Michael? Um, I know that's, at least I think, it's not something that's shown up in this scenario. Where would you introduce disability insurance here? Well, right back to that first conversation of, I think it's important to look at the big picture and highlighting all the different risks they're facing. Uh, this is another way that I find I, I connect well with the commercial insurance brokers on, on the PNC side when they have a, a, an extensive checklist they go through, here's all the potential risks you're facing as a business owner in this industry, in this location. And here's the ones we're going to make a choice on whether we're going to cover them or not and what that amount is. And I think part of our job is illustrating all the potential risks that we have the, the knowledge and the ability to assist with and making sure that the client understands them and is addressing them now or making a choice to address them at a later date. So this was one case as well, when one of the significant risks we were facing is the possibility of a long-term disability of either of the partners. Now this is one, in, in this situation, they both have a, a very good benefits plan. Uh, by virtue of the industry they're in, they're quite well covered. And so they have long-term disability insurance in place, uh, getting very close to the amount that they would ideally like to have. So yes, there's some top-up available, but it was a lower priority because they already have the majority of that risk covered. And of course, that's such a difficult area because you get into the top-up policies. That's a fairly complex thing. And then the question of when you get a business owner who ends up on a disability claim, what income is actually insurable? And then what income actually results in a claim? How do you navigate that? Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of issues with that. I like to tell the story of a client of ours who was a business owner and had disability insurance through his group and he had a stroke he went blind completely and was the kind of guy instead of going to the hospital called an employee to come pick him up at home and drive him to work because he just could not imagine a world when he where he was not at work because of that the insurance company actually challenged the start date of his disability saying you still made it to work you obviously weren't disabled and I had to argue he went blind. Of course he was disabled. Business owners are always a challenge in that. And yes, not the least of, of course, like what you're touching on there, that how they take the income can drastically affect how their disability is treated. Uh, I offer my expertise. I, I'm not managing the benefits plan for this particular group, but I know benefits well enough to, to understand what they have. So I sat down with them, sat down with their, their booklet, their formula, talk to them about how do you take your income, how much income do you take, make sure the accountant agreed, and figured out the calculation. All right, if you were disabled today, this is the check that you're going to see at your home. Is that enough? Does that make sense? Is that covering off the need? Or is there a benefit to us looking at another option? It, in this case, it ended up that their insurance amount through their group, they were satisfied would be sufficient to maintain their home income. The bigger concern was Making, keeping the company afloat. That story about the blind guy, what a, I get that. I understand what the insurer is doing there, but wow, that's a pretty extreme interpretation of the contract. <laughs> it was, and unfortunately, it did not take much explain, explaining before the company, the insurance company, 
stepped up to the plate and allowed the, the claim to go through as needed. So, but I, it was still a, an interesting reason to see it declined. It is curious though. Um, while you mentioned the concept of underwriting, uh, in this particular case, any concerns with underwriting? Uh, did things drag on here or were you able to put all four, I think it's four coverages in place relatively seamlessly? Uh, the life insurance went through quite seamlessly. Both issued standard, made me, made me very happy to see that. And because we ended up using the same company with both the life and the critical illness, there was very little new underwriting that needed to take place. Now that said, both partners ended up being rated for their critical illness. So that uh, was potentially a challenging. We're already dealing with a, a fairly high premium for the critical illness insurance. And now I'm going to be going back and discussing another 25% higher. Fortunately, because we had already had the conversation where we were planning on taking advantage of a shared ownership structure, the end result of ideally not needing to claim and taking that refund down the road, they worked out even better, more so in their favor to have the higher premium. Yeah, it's that weird thing where it's more expensive, therefore more valuable, right? It's mm -hmm. In a case like that, if, if the dollars hadn't been enough to sustain it, and if you're given a trade-off, I don't know if this is the right trade-off to look at, but would you rather go to a term policy or a smaller permanent policy? For the critical illness insurance? Yes. In this particular case, uh, I think I would, have still, I, would have, I would have preferred to go for a smaller permanent policy simply because of this particular group. Uh, it really comes down to individual by individual. Um, if I was concerned that, I'm trying to think of the right way to put it, uh, to, to looking at the, the risk of the critical illness, if we were really just insuring the bare amount they would need to keep the lights on just for six months or 12 months, and it was really tight and they, were, they desperately would need that money, then a bigger term policy would be more valuable. And we could readdress that down the road, hopefully. In this particular case, we went for fairly large critical illness policies wanting to make sure there would be more than enough to keep the, both the company afloat and have some funds coming into the company that could be dividended out to the business owner to support them in treatment. So if we had to reduce that a little bit, I think that would have been preferable and be able to keep the, the benefits of the shared ownership structure or the permanent insurance if they decided to not do the shared ownership surrender and instead keep that permanent insurance around. I, I would have rather have seen that than move down to a term. What about dealing with an estate lawyer on this? Do you bring an estate lawyer in? Is there any, uh, do you get by sell documents done up? Any, any of those risk management tools? Oh, absolutely review the buy sell. Uh, they, already, they were already working with a lawyer they were quite comfortable with. They had worked for quite a few years. Uh, and anytime I'm doing corporate insurance, I say I need to see a copy of the buy sell. Inevitably, I don't think I've seen a buy sell policy that couldn't use a little bit of suggestion or a little bit of tweaking for the one or two clauses that I specialize in. And it's another way that hopefully I'm demonstrating some value to the clients, to the lawyers, to the rest of the team to see that, you know, I know what I'm talking about and that I'm looking out for what is best for the client. So on the life insurance, I do like to see very specific strategies spelled out in the buy sell as to exactly how the money is going to flow in the case of a death of either of these partners and an alternate strategy I typically recommend. For example, if, if one of them is divorced and there's no longer a spouse in the picture and the rollover provisions aren't available, what are we doing then? Perfect. Yeah, that's straight out of the CLU course. I, I like that so much. Any uh, last minute thoughts with that particular client? I know I have another that I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about here, but any last minute things that you think are worth mentioning with that client? Only I think the, it, the, this client has really been a, a, a wonderful example of the value of building those relationships. 
and of showing that level of professionalism and follow-up and communication because once again, this was a, an important commercial broker who's referred to me business in the past. This was the largest case that, that she had ever referred to me. And so that we handled it very well and kept their client very happy. It makes her very confident in sending future clients like that to me. It also gets an idea about the size of client that I like to deal with. This is right up my alley. She works with a number of other commercial brokers. It's nice to have a good reputation there. And I have already gotten, I've already received other referrals from some of the other brokers in that office. Uh, the accountant has actually called, called me up and sit and asked me questions about another client that they're working with. So whether I'll get a chance to actually specifically get some business out of that accountant or simply become a trusted referral source just sounds absolutely wonderful. These clients now, they love me. We hang out all the time. We've had a great, we built up a great relationship and they're already introducing me to other business owners that they work with in, in their industry. So really the value of keeping everything up at a, at the, the quality of service that you would take care of with your clients and making sure that, that gets spread around and it's treated that way. This case has paid dividends and will continue for years. Hard to measure the impact of that, but that sounds really positive on uh, on all fronts. Now, as far as just on the original broker here, how does sort of word get back to her? Do you kind of count on the client to report back to her or do you touch base with her periodically? What does that look like? I do see this other broker quite regularly. I'm very regularly visiting the offices uh, that I work with on the, on the PNC broker offices around the city. So at least every week or two, I'm making sure to just knock on the door and say hello. I make a point of saying, you know, I can't share obviously details or financial decisions or underwriting or anything like that. But I like to just remind them, hey, I met with these clients. Things are going wonderfully. We're getting along great. Everybody's very happy. Let me know if they have anything to say about it. And I often do touch base as well when I'm meeting with a client. I ask, how's everything going in the other insurance world? So if something's blowing up in that world, I have a chance to get back and share with the broker, hey, you need to give this person a call. Something's gone sideways on them. That's really good. Now, uh, switching gears, and I'm sure there's other things we could talk about there, but that's a lot of good stuff. I think people will find that valuable. Uh, there's a second set of clients that you had discussed, a, a very interesting scenario here. Can you maybe just give a quick background on this second set of clients? Absolutely. So these were two partners that we uh, had started working with quite a number of years ago, actually more than 10 years ago, I know, because we just had a term renewal come up. Uh, and they were successful business owners, 50-50 partners in an Alberta-based business. Uh, it was oil and gas related, though, and so they ran into some of the challenges that this province has been facing lately. Uh, around the time that Alberta started having some struggles, they had an opportunity to buy into a U.S. business. And that U.S. business took off like crazy. So while their Canadian business dwindled and eventually shut down entirely, the U.S. business has grown and grown and grown and done very, very well, and they've continued to expand. So while we took care of their, their buy-sell insurance on their Canadian operation, that operation shut down. They no longer needed it, but they had their Canadian holding companies who are partners in a limited partnership that now owned this U.S. company that, uh, that had grown to a point now that they wanted to make sure that the same sort of protections we had in place for the Canadian companies would be available to them in the U.S. But they weren't sure how to structure cross-border buy-sell and how do we handle insurance and wh who needs to pay for it and is it U.S. or is it Canadian? And of course, they would talk to their U.S. tax advisors who would say, do it all in the U.S. They would talk to their Canadian tax advisors who would say, do it all in Canada. They came to us and say, what should we do just to make sure our families are protected and if something happens to us, we would get the value of the business. I'm assuming that there would have been a lot 
of uh, on your part here seeking out professional advice who do you talk to in a scenario like this absolutely uh first step is we went back to our mga our mga does a lot of work in in corporate insurance world and does have some cross-border expertise so we were able to share the corporate structures that the clients had shared with us and explain where the concerns were where the ownerships were what companies were available and get some advice on to what would be an optimal way to structure the flows of the ownerships, the premiums, the beneficiaries, the payouts. How would we structure all that in an ideal way so we don't run into a whole bunch of cross-border tax issues or a long, drawn-out period of time before the family would get what they needed? What was the sort of result of that consultation then? What's your takeaway from that? After spending you know, quite a bit of time and trying to read up on as much as possible, recognizing the consequences of what happens when, when money is put into a, into a U.S. company and is paid back to Canadians or what happens to life insurance that is, that is paid cross-border, uh, really at the end of the day that the, these, this company, even the U.S. company, yeah, it, it, was, it was large, but it wasn't, it wasn't so large that it was worth the level of complexity that all these different advisors are trying to put in place. And it ended up that with all the, the, the restructuring and the legal arrangements that would have to be done to quote unquote optimize the flow of premium dollars and benefit dollars out of this would cost far more than the amount that would ever be saved in tax. At the end of the day, the final recommendation was keep the insurance up here in Canada between the holding companies between the individuals using the spousal rolls over rollovers and uh, a very simplified and standard structure, and then allow the, the USA and the documents to handle the transition of the ownerships of their various partnerships down the States afterwards. But the primary goal from the client's perspectives was protecting their families. They wanted to make sure their families got the values of the, out of the business that they deserved and weren't held up in courts and tax discussions eternally after that. So the answer was, keep it simple, keep it all Canadian, keep it in as few hands as possible, and let the legal documents settle things out in the U.S. should something happen. So you've got personally owned insurance here in a cross-purchase or a crisscross arrangement. That's your ultimate solution here? Yes, exactly. I see this in class. As you well know, I teach some of the content for the CLU, and... I find when I show the cross-purchase and then you go on and you show, well, if you do the share redemption or whatever, it's so much more tax efficient. People say, well, why would anybody do the cross-purchase? But I think you've done a good job of presenting that here. It really comes down to it works first and foremost. And sometimes that complexity is going to cause more problems than it saves. I think this is a great example of that. One partner in particular, and this comes from just getting to know these clients, he values simplicity. He, he finds it very, very frustrating how, how complex his structures are already. He's a very blue collar guy. He doesn't trust, I never wear a suit and tie when I go to see this guy. He doesn't trust lawyers and insurance guys, all that kind of rah-rah stuff. But he truly values simplicity and he likes what he can understand. So the value of a plan that I could write down on a napkin and explain to him was worth far more than being able to save a few percentage points in taxes after two years of, of legal arguments. Yeah, I buy that. And the other comment, I mean, right now, the Americans are in the throes again of potentially revamping their estate tax laws. And there's so much 
added complexity as those laws move, how much do you have to shift around every time either country changes its rules and you get into the more complex versions of the Income Tax Act. I, I just, I can't imagine how much benefit you'd have to get before you started to put a, like a permanent solution in place with corporations in, in a scenario like this. I, I just can't see it. And we also, we also had with one of the partners, we have less than a 10 year window. So I mean, the reality is, is while yes, there would be some, there's some conversation to be had around uh, the value of permanent insurance and cash value and all the rest. You're exactly right. We would, we would spend more in legal and accounting bills than we would ever save in taxes trying to put something together. Those are both really helpful scenarios, Michael. I think that a lot of takeaways there point to the just building that good referral network and then really taking care of that referral network. You talked about touching base again with those folks and uh, making it about the relationship more than anything else. I thought that was great. Really getting to know your clients in both scenarios. You talked about, again, building up a, a good relationship with the clients and getting to know who those people were and tailoring solutions to who those folks were. Any key takeaways, anything else you, you want to share about either scenario or just these types of scenarios in general before we wrap up? You know, I think you've, you've touched on what I find has become a real key point in my business. The value of the face-to-face -face relationship has grown as, as I suppose technology and online communication have offered us so many ways to disconnect. And I, we see the insurance and the finance industry and the benefits industry, everything moving towards these online, low-cost commodity approaches that I don't think we can compete in that market. Uh, I think the value in what we do is going to become from looking a client in the eye of having a face-to-face -face relationship, of becoming a true trusted advisor, and then we will be the person who can actually put the right product or the right solution in place for that particular client. That's something that no online chatbot is ever going to replicate. That being said, I think that you have to have a significant amount of expertise. You have to really work to understand both your own side of the house, the product and the industry side, and your client. And I mean, yes, I think it's easy to say that chatbot can't replace that. But if you're not doing those things well, then the chatbot can replace you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If all, you are, if all you're doing is smiling and nodding or you have just a pretty face, that's not going to go anywhere. You have to take care of the clients. You have to know what you're doing because otherwise there's a hundred other people out there who do and you can be replaced. And the, I think the competitiveness of this industry is going to become higher and higher. I talk to clients who are getting calls on a weekly, if not daily basis from other people trying to take over business or trying to introduce things to them. If I haven't been the one to at least introduce the concept to it first or speak to it intelligently, that's a huge vulnerability on my part. That's a valid point. I've seen IFAs shopped around hard over the last couple of years here as an example. And while they can work in some cases, I, I'm always concerned about putting them in place for the person who doesn't know what they're getting into. Yep, I've had to help a few clients unwind ones that have been set up in ways that were not right for that individual. And that's it's unfortunate to watch. It is tough on the client, tough on the business, tough on relationships. There's just, yeah, there's a lot to be said for Again, like you said earlier, you put in place stuff that matches the client set of circumstances. I think that's great, Michael. Let's uh, wrap up there. Have a great day. And hopefully we can get you on again to talk about other good insurance or maybe some benefit scenarios. I think that you bring some good perspective on this. Thank you very much, Jason. Always a pleasure. Okay, that was quite good. I, as you can see, enjoyed that quite a bit. 
couple things that I want to follow up on here. And one is the engagement. And this is maybe the one place where I could have pressured Michael a little bit more. One of the things that I believe that FP Canada expects, and maybe this is me putting words in their mouth. I always have to be concerned here. But my reading of the standards of professional responsibility says that you want to be reasonably clear as to who your engagement is with. So is your client a corporation? Is your client the shareholder of that corporation? Is your client the shareholder and their spouse? Who's the actual client here? Now, I think Michael's actually clear on this. Maybe I'm unfairly commenting here. I do think that he says, look, I have the, the two shareholders as clients, and I think meeting with them together initially is, I think it's okay. I would want to be very clear about the type of engagement. And I think he is. He talked about uh, a lot of due diligence here, a lot of discussion around the, the sort of value add proposition, around the financial planning proposition. I think that's all good. I just want to be perfectly clear that when we establish the engagement, it should be, I think, as far as FP Canada is concerned, it should be very clear as to who we're establishing the engagement with. And I think it's possible to have a corporation as a client. I think it's possible to have the shareholder of that corporation as a client. From a legal perspective, those are two separate entities. I think it's worth noting that. So I hope that's not confusing. I do think it can be a little bit confusing in real life scenarios like we hear here. I'm sure that most of you heard what Michael talked about and thought it was quite intuitive. And then you get into what the standards of professional responsibility say, and maybe it muddies those waters a little bit. I'd be interested to hear comments about that. I'm really curious to hear what anybody would have to say about that. The other thing that came up here that we didn't get into very much, I think Michael and I just kind of agreed on it and then moved on, is that once you have insurance, and it can be term or permanent, but permanent is a bigger problem in the corporation, it is quite difficult to get that insurance out of the corporation. You're running your business, you've got your permanent insurance in place, you hold it in the corporation, and the reason you would do this is because you get about a 40% cheaper premium with your after-tax corporate dollar versus your after-tax personal dollar you're running the insurance just fine, but then one day you sell the business or you're going to wind up the business or maybe leave the country and you've got that permanent insurance policy in the corporation. Well, you can't just transfer it out of the corporation absent any tax consequences. What probably has to happen here is you have to get an actuarial valuation and then transfer the policy into personal ownership which then becomes a taxable benefit for that shareholder. It might be able to be taxed as a dividend. In fact, it probably can be. I have seen various interpretations there, and I did talk about that in one previous episode. Regardless, that's one of those things where you might have put in place what was a really good plan at the time in the set of circumstances. However, when the circumstances change, that really good plan was no longer a really good plan. And that's where I want to be very careful about holding permanent insurance in the corporation. It's probably not such a concern with critical illness insurance. 
And when Michael talked about this, he talked about holding that CI in the corporation. I, I'm not sure how CRA would view a transfer of a corporately held CI policy into your hands. Personally, this is not explicitly addressed in the Income Tax Act, and I don't know that it would be easy to find an opinion about that. But because there's that return of premium feature, it's not necessarily a life sentence with that uh, insurance policy anyways. The number for today's episode is six. The number for today's episode is six. Okay, join us again in a couple weeks when we talk to Stephen. We're going to talk to Stephen about discretionary portfolio management and how a portfolio manager can fit within a financial advisor's business model. And we'll talk a little bit about theory around asset management and active and passive and a few of the concerns that show up around investment management. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. As always, I would ask you to pop over to Apple Podcasts or whatever medium you use to listen to the podcast and leave us a review. I know a few people have left ratings recently. That's great. Really appreciate those ratings. I'm also always on the lookout for reviews. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast.